hello and welcome to episode 73 of the 1099 for the week of January 2nd, 2017. I am your host, Josiah Renauden, and with me today is the CEO of FooVR and a former editor at Tested and Maximum PC, Will Smith. Will, thank you so much for coming on today. How are you doing? Doing great, Josiah. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. And I really want to say, first off, congrats on your successful Foo Show Kickstarter. I mean, it's, it is hard to get funding from people, and it sounds like there's a lot of interest in it, so it must feel really cool to kind of kick off the end of the year of this very interesting, mostly shitty year to actually be able to say that, <laughs> hey, this thing's been funded. Yeah, um, it was it was really great. I mean, anybody who's made something that they then release for people knows that that fear of what if we put this out there and like nobody buys it, and it happens a lot. And and we were really excited to just have people excited about what what we made. Um, it, it's funny because the Fusho when we initially did that preview episode in, in the spring, we kind of hadn't planned before we did it to do more of them. We thought, oh, this is just a good way to to showcase this weird thing that we've built and how you can use it. Um, that won't require us to hire a big, massive team of artists. And then people liked it so much that we had to figure out a way to actually make it happen. So uh, here we are uh, nine months later, I guess. Yeah, crowdfunding seems kind of like this ultimate putting yourself out there moment, especially if it's a Patreon and you're like, hey, could you fund me personally? And you just never <laughs> know, like, am I going to get $7 and learn a lot like about what I feel like I'm worth? Like, there's, there's a strange nature to that. But with, with the actual Fusho, like, how did this idea materialize? You mentioned before that putting that first episode out, but like, what about it? What about this idea of this kind of virtual talk show? Where did that initially come from? Well, so, so the the initial spark wasn't, hey, let's do a talk show in VR because that's people have done that before, and 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 it's interesting, but it wasn't. It doesn't really showcase the the core arc of VR. The thing that the place it started was looking at what I did tested, which was to go out and find people who make cool things and then go to their shops and go to the places that they built these things and, and kind of showcase these projects. Um, oftentimes from the inside, you know, like when somebody made this amazing, an amazing gothic ray gun spaceship for Burning Man and Maker Faire, we climbed up inside and we interviewed the people who made it inside their creation. And, and that was kind of the spark is that we could do that for things that exist in the physical world, but for things that are purely digital and intangible, uh, that, that isn't possible. So, uh, when I saw VR and I saw what we could do with, with the stuff that we'd built in the early days of Foo, I knew, hey, we, we could actually go and interview the people who make video games and scientists who do cool stuff with 3D models for visualization and, and measuring data. And we could actually interview those people from inside these places that, that, uh, you know, prior to, you know, middle of 2015 couldn't, couldn't, your brain couldn't perceive as a real, as a real tangible place. So that, that was the impetus. And also, you know, let's be real. There were pragmatic reasons to, to do uh, a show with other people's art, mm -hmm. uh, mainly that I didn't have to hire a whole massive team of artists. Cause we are uh, still a really small, you know, three, three man with some occasional contractor and friends help startup. Uh, we talked off air a bit about how it's difficult sometimes to communicate why vr is cool i mean i didn't get a chance to put on a headset until like you know a year and a half ago and then it was one of those oh i get it moments are you having or did you have any difficulty even with the foo show in a similar sense of hey uh if you want to like it, it's hard to communicate why this idea of exploring these worlds that were previously 2d like firewatch and actually being there is really cool and is really novel was that something that you struggled with when you're trying to actually raise money for this yeah so um the thing that it quickly became apparent is that much better than telling, trying to describe pe to people what, what we built was to show them. Um, cause when you say, Oh yeah, we have 
avatars that you can puppet and record their performances. It's kind of like cheap mo capture, motion capture, but instead of, you know, being on a green screen or being on a sound stage, a motion capture stage where you can't really see the things you're interacting with, you can, you can put on the headset and you can be in the same world that the viewer will. And by that point, the person's eyes have glazed over and you completely lost them. Um, Whereas if you put them in a performance, and you let them see the the avatar moving and it looks like your your brain treats it as human after just a few seconds and you know it reads the body language and it reads the head tilts and the eye tracking and the lips moving and all that and it's like oh right this is a this looks like a video game but but i'm going to my my brain is going to do all the subconscious stuff with this avatar that i do in the real world so it's going to make eye contact you're going to nod you're going to kind of raise your hand if you want to say something even though it's pre-recorded and you can't jump in um that stuff comes across immediately when you put on the headset and, and then, you know, our, our investor demo that we built last year ended with a puppet that was just mirroring your movements. So mm-hmm. you could see when you had the headset on, you could see exactly how the movement worked and see that it wasn't hand animated and that we aren't spending, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars a minute to make things like the Foo show. Cause that would be insane. Um, but, but that's kind of what the, you know, if you're talking about traditional 3d animation, that's, that's kind of what the cost is. It's, it's really is stupendous. So, so yeah, it was, um, like th- I think back to end of last year when I was doing investor demos and I had, a uh, I filled the back of my car with a Vive rig with a dev kit, dev kit Vive and a desktop PC and a monitor and the tripods to hold the, the lighthouses and all that stuff. Luckily now it all fits in one backpack if I, if I need to take it on the road because I can get laptops and all that stuff, which is, which is incredibly helpful to just, to just show and not tell. Yeah. It's absolutely come a long way. Uh, for you personally, was there a certain moment, maybe two, three, four years ago where you tried something in VR and just had that like, holy shit or damn, like I need to do this <laughs> moving forward moment? Cause you were at tested for quite some time and I've been a giant bomb fan for, ever since it started so you know of course saw you when you were there uh, and i've probably gotten a lot of coffee advice from you over time so (laughs) i I assume the vr bug must have bitten you pretty hard to pull you away from that site yeah so um so i started tested in 2010 with norm and you know the nice thing about it was we really quickly realized like i realized at least that, that that the things that were most interesting to me to cover for tested were the things that were new and we hadn't kind of figured out like we as a species hadn't figured out yet. Not Norm and I hadn't figured out yet, but like stuff like drones and 3d printers and home CNC machines and mills and stuff like that. And, and virtual reality. Um, when the moment that it hit me there, there I, I tell the story a lot. So um, in let's see, March of last year at GDC 2015, the HTC and Valve brought the Vive there for the first time. It was the first time really most people had heard anything other than rumors about it. And I went into that, spent 18 minutes in that room, and was went through the demo loop, which was like the blue, and it was the an archery thing, and it was um let's see what else. The the uh tilt brush and a few a handful of other things. Mm. And I like in that moment, I went from, oh, this is going to be really neat for video games, which was my thought for VR up until that point, to holy shit, this is a whole new interface for computing. <laughs> it's the most native thing. My my brain, like 18 minutes felt like two hours in the room, right? And I was, I went, I, I, I poked and prodded it in a way that I never really, I I'd always poke and prod stuff. It's kind of how I am. But but I, I I wanted to understand how it worked more than anything I'd ever seen before. And not, and not like technically how it worked because that that was great and everything, but like 
the rules of the world that my as my brain interpreted it and how my brain reacted to that because it was the first time the first time you put on a vive was probably the first time you were interacting with a 3d world with your hands that was malleable in the same way that video games and software are and and the fact that my brain accepted that immediately was stupendous. And then a couple of months later, we went to E3 and did the toy box demo from Oculus with the first prototype touch controllers. And, and, you know, in that space, you had just a wireframe avatar and a pair of hands that were disembodied and it tracked the head movement and the hand movement. And my brain filled in the rest. My brain was like, okay, that's that's Chris. He's a friend of mine. I, I've known him for a long time. And he's doing the other side of this demo for me. But but my brain treated that most rudimentary representation of a person as if it were a person. And at that point, I knew that that like a bunch of things were possible that we probably hadn't considered yet. It's it's strange how much it's natural to your brain early on, but also you're still shocked by what's going on around you. I remember again. I'm in like an editor community management role for here they lie in tan gentlemen so i wasn't actively developing it so when i first mm-hmm. put the headset on and played the game there's this moment where you're up against kind of like a a balcony and you see this railing that in a normal 2d game when you look down you can't really see over the railing you're just looking at the railing and i leaned forward not even thinking it was going to work and then saw straight down and had this wow, that was natural for me to do that, but holy shit, I can't believe that worked moment. VR has been full of stuff like that for me where you just have these, you try things because you're fully invested in this world and feeling like you're there, but then when your brain connects, no, but this isn't real, you're like, I can't believe that actually worked. So so, uh, two two things. One is last year at the end of the year, I sat up in a basement in San Francisco and just did demos for eight hours a day to investment bankers and corporate attorneys and law and bankers and investors and VCs and all sorts of people. Um, and a couple of friends took advantage of that time and brought their kids into demo. So we put an eight or nine year old in and he was playing job simulator. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting for two reasons. One is that we could see the world through his perspective, right? We saw he's about four feet tall. So the kitchen at that point in job simulator, they've since fixed this. But at that point, if you were playing job simulator, you were still, your head was right at counter height. So you got to literally see what it was like to be, you know, four feet tall and, oh, yeah. and try to interact with a normal human sized kitchen. But then he was so immediately taken away by the experience and his brain forgot that it wasn't real that he did the thing that he does in the real world, which is that he leans up against the edge of the counter and stretches as far as he can to grab the stuff at the far side of the, of the counter. Except in this case, the counter is not real. So when he leaned up against it, he just completely pancaked into the floor. <laughs> um, and you know, it was, a little bit hilarious. He didn't hurt himself, so it was much funnier. Um, but he got up and was brushed himself off, was ready to jump right back in and was, was really excited about it. But, but like that, that was for me a really important moment because like he, he was, you know, he, he didn't have the filter that a lot of adults bring the, oh, this is a video game filter. He put the headset on and immediately forgot that, that he wasn't in the real world. The other big terrifying moment for me in the last year, was uh, when we sat down with Jake and Sean from Campo Santo to record that preview episode. Because mm-hmm. at that point, um, my team, Andre and Sandra and I, had spent some time using the studio that we record in. So so when we record, you put on the headset and you're in the space that you see in the final episode, right? Mm-hmm. Y- you walk around in it. Typically, we record with everybody in the same room just because it's easier to get everybody in one place. Um, and so physical space and virtual space overlap one to one. If Sean is to my left and I reach out to him in VR, he'll be on my left in, in real life and I can touch him there. Um, 
when we put those headsets on the first time, I had never tried to interview anyone before in VR that hadn't already spent a lot of time in our environment. So I wasn't sure, you know, when you interview somebody in person, there's a, there's some, there's some body language stuff that happens that I wasn't sure was going to get conveyed, right? There's the, there's the, Hey, I'm about to interrupt you. Hey, I'm, I, I have something to add to this or, Hey, I disagree with what you're saying. And I want to, I want to correct something that you've, some error that you've made. And I, I didn't know how long the onboarding process was going to be for those guys, when we first started out, which was, I think, the most terrifying moment of my professional career, because, <laughs> you know, at that point, I'd spent nine months or something building this six months building this. And and who knew if I just flushed six months and a ton of money down the toilet? Yeah, no, that has to be terrifying. And yeah, like you mentioned, there's so much body language cues that go with it in in-person interview, like how much of that is going to transfer in VR, which is uh like probably easier to do than a like we're doing a Skype call. So if you want to interrupt me right now, I have no idea unless you yell at me. But there's probably a little bit more with actual VR in that space. Well, and that that was the interesting thing that came out of it, right? Is that the the amount of the amount of body language that comes over. You don't, yeah, you know, we don't measure shoulders, but when because of the way we track uh, heads and the and the way we do the animation, if you if you if you do the move that looks like a shrug, your head moves in a really specific way and your hands move in a really specific way. And we can fill in that gap, right? We can say, oh, probably 80% sure he shrugged. And since we're not trying to do actual motion capture, we don't want to get one-to-one. We just want to generate a believably human avatar out of this. Then then it all it all looks good, which is, I, I think, you know, it's 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 pretty magical. The other thing that's really neat is you never have that bad conference call, like the bad duplex thing happening where one person starts talking and the other person's mic mutes and, you know, and then you're like, what? Wait, hold on. You broke up for a second. I can't. Can you say that? And there's this back and forth where you're both trying to interrupt each other and it doesn't work because you just kind of move your hand up a little bit. And the other person says, oh, right. Will wants to say something. So I'll be, my brain will be quiet now. God, I'd never even thought about that aspect of it. Uh, what makes you like, how do you determine which creators and worlds to actually explore in FUVR? Like what I think, uh, Firewatch is perfect. I played that game and wanted to see more of it. I wanted to be more of a part of it. Uh, it's in terms of length, I think it works out perfectly, but I was still like, I'm not done with this world and these, uh, kind of environments. So for you moving forward, other than, of course, getting people to agree to it, like what are you looking for in worlds, uh, characters and, creators you want to work with well so the first place we start is hey is this an interesting is this a game that i'm interested in personally um is there an environment in it that i'm interested in exploring more and finding out more about um you know then beyond there there's obviously there's challenges with licensing and and all that stuff let's see early on i reached out to several we'll say triple a publisher developer companies of games that i am notoriously fond of Mm -hmm. and and it turns out giant companies like Activision and EA are less enthusiastic about signing over their IP so that somebody else <laughs> can use them to make money. Yep. Um, even if you agree to like the amount of money that we will make off the Fusha that we can, you know, pay them back is, is inconsequential to them. So, um, you know, so, so for right now, we're focusing obviously on indie games because those guys, A, are, more pragmatic about the reality of Russian hackers decompiling their unity bundles and having them up on the internet three minutes after the games on steam. Mm-hmm. Um, but also like it's, it's like, those are the games I've been playing. Like that's, that's the thing I realized a few years ago is that I still play most of the triple a games, but the things that I get really excited about are the kind of more focused. Hey, if we have 
half a million dollars or a couple hundred thousand dollars or or even up to a couple few million dollars in the case of Firewatch, I think. You know, what what is the story we want to tell in this most kind of without any of the other without all the like if I'm doing a bad job explaining this. If you look at something like Watch Dogs or or Assassin's Creed, those games have 35 different mechanical mini games in them and a million ways to interact with that with that world. Um, if you look at something like Firewatch, they have three ways to interact with the world and a really, really deep, rich conversation system that is at that time un- kind of didn't exist in any other game that I'd ever played. Um, and we didn't even get into that because we were so busy talking about props, but like, like usually I, I find something I want to explore more. So Quadrilateral Cowboy is the first episode of the, of the season. And, uh, Quad Cow, Brendan Chung, the, the Blendo Games who makes, made Quad Cow and Gravity Bone and 30 Flights of Loving. Yeah makes these really cinematic feeling um but but very personal stories in in these old ancient id tech engine games uh that I find really compelling so so it was and we talked about badminton a little bit too which is pretty pretty fun as well so <laughs> is is there any challenge uh you talk about like 30 flights of loving is like you said it's the graphically much different than something like firewatch or let's say if you were to do this in assassin's creed is there any challenge in the actual graphical fidelity from game to game, or does that not really matter as long as you get the assets? Well, we've only done three, three or four so far, so okay. it's it's. I don't have any hard and fast rules. Everything's a new adventure. Um, mostly, the I mean, the big challenge is trying to recreate the original artist's intent in a completely different engine, often um, with different performance requirements. Right? If you're talking about bringing a console game. You can run a game like um, like Firewatch at 30 frames a second on a PS4, and we need it to actually run at 90 frames a second times two, one for each eye on on the Vive or Rift. And and the Rift and the Vive are are the min spec for those are much more capable than a, than a stock PS4, but it's still you know the there's all sorts of other compatibility stuff like the if they're using this didn't come up in 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 Firewatch, but if if you're using vertex shaders to do carpet, a lot of those a lot of vertex shaders aren't stereo um, correct. So that would mean that we have to figure out a new way to render the carpet in the same way and, and stuff like that. So yeah, it's, it's, um, it's one of those things we started out down this path to try to save money building art. And we just spend a lot more time fiddling with other people's art than we probably would have building our own. Um, yeah. But, but it, I mean, it is, it is, I, I, I am, it's always exciting to go explore someone else's, uh, work in in that way it's a completely new experience i think which which was the thing that we were really excited about after we after we made the first episode and i don't mean to be too down on vr because both of our career paths have intertwined with vr in some way and kind of depend on it but uh, i feel like from vive to the rift to even psvr a lot of the story that's been going around is that sales might not be meeting expectations uh, it's the attachment rate might not be as high as a lot of people initially projected so as someone who is creating a show that's primarily in vr uh, and really only possible to interact with it in VR. How good do you feel about not just the present, but the actual future of VR as an entire genre? I mean, is it's a hard question, but is there money to be made here? Is this going to be something that you believe is kind of a something that'll stick around moving forward in games? Um, man, that that's a that's a big question. I um, I, I so. Last year, we ended up not taking some fairly substantial investment investment money from venture capital in favor of a friends and family round, um, simply because 
the revenue projections that most of the venture capitalists were looking at included mobile and kind of treated that as the same as desktop VR, meaning Vive, Oculus, PSVR, and whatever the open open source VR stuff ends up being. Um, you know, basically real GPU versus mobile GPU. Mm. And I was worried that in order to hit the revenue projections that, that, that those venture capitalists wanted, we would have to do things that, that would kind of leverage the market more than it was ready for in, in this new phase. We, we passed on a lot of money to, to do that. Yeah. Um, and instead we, we looked at how we could get kind of really scrappy and, and make the thing that we wanted in the same way that like a lot of indie studios do. Uh, so, so I, you know, I think, in this early phase, while the headsets are still eight hundred dollars for the full hands experience, which is which just to be clear, the hands are the important part. Yeah. The the walking around the room is neat, but it but having hands is a transformative moment and not having hands is feels like a just a fancy monitor that you stick on your head. Um I I think I think teams are gonna have to be scrappy and think about new ways to fund things and and things like that. Like we did the Kickstarter specifically because I don't want to go out and make a bunch of Fusho episodes if there aren't at least a few thousand people that are willing to pay for them. Mm-hmm. Um, we we can't we don't have the money to do that. We we just it's not that I don't want to. We can't. Um, so so we're going to in the next year when we have new ideas for shows. We're going to put them out to the to the market and let the let the audience decide what they want to see by voting with their dollars, right? If we if we want to put together a procedural crime show that lives in VR where the viewer is like a bunny suit guy picking carpet fiber off the floor, uh, and oh, I see Marissa Hargitay or walking around in the background, like you guys are going to have to pony up if you want to see that. Um, but but yeah, I, I think I think that that's. Like at the scale that we're at now, if your team sizes are small, that's a really interesting model. I I would be absolutely terrified if I had a five or 10 or 15 person, maybe not five, but 10 or 15 person team working on VR stuff right now, because, uh, you know, the the install base isn't there. The attach rate on Vive seems to be really good from everything I've read in in the media. The attach rate on Oculus is a little bit uh, more challenging, but that's, I think, uh, uh, because of the pricing model that they tend to lean toward. Um, and then PlayStation is a complete unknown to me. We haven't released anything on PlayStation yet. Although everybody asks, we are registered P- PSVR developers and we'll be releasing on PlayStation. Uh, it's just a matter of where, where do we put our three people to, to make, do the most good for us right now. Do you think the uncertainty of VR has anything to do with the f- why we haven't seen maybe a killer app or this big kind of sprawling experience that could only really be in VR? Because a lot of it is, and you've probably played more VR games than I ever will. Um, but a lot of it seems to be like hour, two hour long experiences that are novel, but not really lasting. I think, uh, super hot VR was a super cool idea. Like that's something that I think is amazing, but have you played anything that made you think like, holy shit again, like your holy shit moment from before, like this is something that could only be done in VR and it's really just like nothing else. Um, yeah, like I, I think that there's. I mean, there's a lot of stuff like that, right? I look at like Cosmic Trip is a good example of this weird thing that couldn't exist anywhere else, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of a, a hybrid strategy. Uh, it's almost like, it's almost like a MOBA, I guess. Uh, it, I, I guess they're, they're the towers you build. So they're not like a MOBA, but it's more like a strategy game. Okay. And you attack them, the enemies by flinging these frisbee discs at them. Um, and it, it's much more kind of personal. I, 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 um, Let's see. I expect you to die is pretty amazing. It's a, essentially a room escape. Mm-hmm. Um, 
the VR sports challenge stuff that came with the touch last week is it's rough in, in really interesting places. Like it, it definitely kind of feels like a, Hey, what can we do if we have 18 months and X amount of people and X amount of dollars? And, and can we make it feel like you're a hockey goalie for five minutes at a time? And, and it kind of succeeds in that stuff in a way that, that is outside of the normal genre boundaries of traditional PC and console games. I think, um, I'm trying to think the the stuff that I play the most. I mean, I'm I'm pulling up Steam right now so I can just look because yeah. that's that's the easiest way to do this. Um, like House of the Dying Sun pulls up a. Let me take a step back. I don't think you're going to see massive Assassin's Creed level games where you have this hundred hour experience that that could be a ten hour experience or a hundred hour experience depending on how quickly you mainline the the core the core game. Um, for quite a while, because because like, those games cost hundreds of millions of dollars to create, and there is literally no chance you're going to recoup a hundred million dollars on a VR game in 2017 or probably even 2018, if we're being real. Mm. Um, I think what we'll see are these little subsets, the snippets of games that are um, interesting. That it's it's one of the things I think is interesting about Steam. Like Steam is pricing is letting people come out and release these these little kind of they're not they're bigger than mini games. They're smaller than a than a triple A um, console title but they're they're kind of priced appropriately and and that's really interesting to me when when we start looking at $40 VR games I get really anxious because $40 is a ton to spend on a on most of the VR games I've played to date um but like Arizona Sunshine is this is is a terrifying shooter it's it's left for dead in VR but it feels nothing like left for dead and it's much more tense than left for dead ever was for me um, and it kind of makes playing traditional shooters feel a little bit like, you know, going back and listening to radio drama after the TV. I, or at least I, I, what I imagine that felt like I wasn't around back then. Yeah. And I, I, you mentioned a lot of these like smaller experiences. And I think one of the cooler parts about it is just each one is kind of this new discovery of, oh, I didn't know that worked in VR or I never thought of something in that way with this sort of device while developing the Fusho, Have you found, and I'm sure you have, but have you found some like crazy quirks in VR that were like glitches or discoveries or just amazing, amazing things that you didn't realize were possible until you started actually just kind of fiddling with it. I think it was uh, one of the big live live shows where you were doing the Fusho with giant bomb or one of their live streams where when I think you took the headset off, it looked like your body was almost like, devouring itself oh, like he did this weird yeah. crazy looking thing like have you found a lot of these glitches that to me are amazing and to you might be frustrating but have you seen a lot of this stuff let's see one time we've had a lot of weird bugs um because we deal with human bodies it's especially horrifying yeah um once we had we actually made quato where we had a copy of your head that was kind of embedded in your chest oh god so like then the lips would move and everything that was that was that was easily the scariest thing we've <laughs> accidentally done um, like if the, if the, I, so our animation works by using inverse kinematics and some, some machine learning algorithms to, to move, uh, to fill in elbows and stuff like that. And if you set variables wrong, or if the IK, if the rig, if the model, you know, uh, um, if people don't know the, when you take a 3d model and then make it set it up so it can move you call it rigging mm -hmm. if the rig is wrong bad things happen and like the eyelids flip the wrong i get like the the quad cow episode when we recorded it brendan's eyelids uh blinked the wrong way so they blinked up instead of down it's very discomforting oh my god um 
the melting into the floor happens. We originally thought, oh, we should do a cool teleporter effect or something when you like take your headset off and put it on the floor. But then we realized that it's much dumber to just let the IK try to figure out how to solve the the head and the and the hands being resting on the floor right next to each other, and it does this horrible melting down thing that that uh, it, it's, it's really it, amazing. It's pretty good. Yeah, we we I think we're probably gonna keep, that's probably gonna be just how the shows start from now on. But I, uh, <laughs> it might be too weird for people. We'll have to see. I think it's the right kind of quirky and glitchy. I think it's the glitchy and the weirdness that you could get behind instead of like that. Well, you could say that doesn't look right, but it doesn't look right in all the right ways. So I 100% think you should stick with it. It's it's kind of like um some friends of mine used to be really into circuit bent toys mm-hmm. where you take like a kid's electronic toy that does talking or has voice stuff or whatever and then open it up and put some uh, pots and resistors and stuff in there to to let you like control the mod and modulate the voices that come out. It's kind of like that in the level of dis- <laughs> like that. Just to be clear, profoundly disturbing the circuit. The circuit event <laughs> toys seeing like a speak and spell just lose its fucking mind is profoundly disturbing. And this is this. I like to think we brought a little bit more of that into the world. I think yours is somewhat endearing in a disturbing way. It, it's it's a <laughs> nice mix. I kind it's like nightmare fuel, but not that bad of nightmare fuel. I kind of I, again. I fully vote for it. Uh, you, okay. you mentioned before the pricing of games kind of being all over the place. And when you have a $40 VR experience, especially since a lot of these are an hour or two hours long and not always overly replayable, it's kind of, you know, you pause for a second. Do you, in terms of just the overall expense of VR, because a lot of people, if you don't have a gaming PC, of course, you have to get that. And then there's the headset that's, you know, 600 800 $1,000, depending on which one you get mm-hmm. and whether you want hands and stuff like that. Is that something that's going to be a consistent hurdle or... Do you really think that over the next few years we could start getting the price of VR for people actually getting in the door lower and lower? And of course, PlayStation VR is an example of a lot of people have PlayStation 4s. Here's this $400 or $500 set that's just kind of an addition to it. But do you kind of see the price going down so more people can start coming in? Yeah, I I mean, that's look, I've been doing this for long enough. I I started out reviewing video cards and operating systems for Ars Technica in 1998. Oh, wow. You know, at that, I remember going to electronics boutique i think and buying a voodoo 2 for 200 dollars the day that it came out mm-hmm. um if you look at the capability and the cost of those devices that they've come down dramatically over the last few years of the last 20 years and and we'll see vr do the same thing like already we're seeing um people are developing hdmi wireless hdmi transfer with the latency that's appropriate for vr which didn't exist a year ago because there was no reason for it to exist, right? There's no reason for HDMI signals to have wireless HDMI to have low latency until VR came around. And now there's companies in Shanghai building kits you can hook onto your Vive to make it, it wireless and, and last for like an hour, 45 minutes or an hour and a half. I can't remember which one. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, clearly they're innovating. The headsets are going to get lighter. They're going to get smaller. They're going to, the resolution will gradually over time increase. Um, it's just, it's just a matter of, of you know what's the magic inflection point and and you know let's be real i think there's a very real chance that it won't be a native desktop headset that's plugged into your pc it'll be something that's you know a a dedicated device maybe that's somewhere in between a mobile experience and a and a pc now or maybe it's not even maybe it's maybe it's just a mobile maybe it's just a thing we jam our phones into maybe it becomes our pair of glasses that you hook up to your phone or something like that in 10 years who knows um but i i think the audience will get there eventually 
Yeah, no, I agree. And yet the phone thing, I have actually not tried any of that yet. Is that anything that is actually, is that powerful enough to do anything right now as is? You see all these commercials on TV of old people putting on phone VR and going crazy. Like, is there, how much more powerful will that have to get to actually give you real, actually worthwhile VR experiences? Um, so I like, look, I'm not, I'm not, it's funny given my background is I, I reviewed video cards for 10 years. I'm not crazy about power. Um, I think the it's capability that's really the problem with the mobile stuff right now. Um, and, and there are some incredible experiences that are available for mobile VR. Just, 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 I, I don't want to slag on mobile VR. Um, if you, the, the challenge is that, they, that we can only track rotation right now with mobile, with mobile based VR. So if you hold your fist up there and you rotate it from side to side and you tilt it up and down, you can track that. But if you move it a foot to the left, the phone has no way of knowing that that happened. And that's a, that's like, that's the, that's the difference between in cap- that and having hands is the difference in capability between a phone and a, and a Vive. There's no reason you can't take <clears throat> a lot of the early wave of Vive games, especially like stuff like Job Simulator and Fusho and just stuff that all sorts of people have been doing you know, decimate the, the assets down, reduce the textures, reduce the amount of computation and put it on a phone and it would work. I mean, the phone's going to overheat after a little while and you'll kill your battery, but, but those machines are capable of drawing similar experiences. The problem is that you can't well get up and walk around the room with the phone on, at least not yet. Yeah. Um, there are people out there doing that too. If you look at, um, uh, occipital systems, they have a, a standalone iPhone attachment headset that uses a, th- a, a room scanning system, to provide six degrees and, and translational movement. So like it's, it's coming, it'll be there. It's just, it's just a matter of, you know, how long does it last? And did the first wave of studios survive that long? Cause the market right there is pretty brutal right now. Yeah. Uh, and this is a complete tangent of a question, but I recently spoke to Adam boys in this podcast and he admitted that he is more often recognized from being on giant bomb content and from those live <laughs> streams than actually speaking at PlayStation press conferences how much for you as being, you know, back when you were on Whiskey Media and back when you were on a lot of, of course, tested videos and Giant Bomb videos, uh, how much has that helped get your name out there? Other than the fact that, of course, you have a unintended Twitter celebrity name where, you know, a lot of people think you're actually the other Will Smith. But Mistakes that, were made. <laughs> has that helped kind of get your, I hate the word brand, but has that really helped kind of get you out there and allowed you to do even more, again, like crowdfunding campaigns like this because people know you from... Uh, your tested and giant bomb days. Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt. Tested. When I left tested, we had almost two million YouTube subscribers. Right. Jeez. We we did something like 2,500 or 3,000 videos in the six years I was there. So when I go when I go to the grocery store, people say, "Hey, are you that guy from Tested? You're Adam, right?" <laughs> no, not Adam. <laughs> um, it, it that that stuff all helps. Um, I mean, it, it's having. There's no way we would have closed sixty thousand dollars on the on the Kickstarter had I not had that audience from from Tested and from Whiskey and and from Maximum PC even like I had people write into me and were like Hey man I really loved what you guys said at Maximum PC fifteen years ago um, so I backed your Kickstarter and I I can't wait to see it I don't have a VR headset yet even um, uh-huh. so yeah I mean I mean that stuff definitely is a huge help and and. You know, it's it's funny because being in the media when you're going out and shopping a business to a, to a venture capitalist, pretty much a negative in my experience. Uh, really? But but when we went to Kickstarter, then they were like, oh yeah, you have a built-in, you have a large audience. People are gonna people 
that, like there's a certain amount of your audience that's going to come in and, and back you no matter no matter what you produce just because they like you and they they want your stuff to succeed and they want more of the stuff that you make to be out there so they can enjoy it um but but yeah like i i tr- i try not to think about that stuff too much it's 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 21st century is interesting and weird in uh, entirely unexpected ways no oh, i mean it's super bizarre just the fact that kickstarter and patreon exist or and that are as like successful as they are is crazy uh it's also the kickstarter is also i think i mean we did we did a little bit of asking users for money for um premium memberships at, at whiskey mm-hmm. and at later it tested but that was always kind of for, for this business and i mean this is for this business too but this this the food business feels much more like me asking for money for something that i've made than tested even though you know tested norm and i built that from scratch basically um so yeah it was it was it was lovely to see the support from people like i i i i was sitting there and somebody backed us before i tweeted about the kickstarter being live oh, wow. or or anything like that. And I was like, oh man, that is awesome. Thank yeah. you so much. So, yeah. And I mean, now yeah. that you have that support and now that it's funded, I mean, what's, what's kind of the game plan moving forward? It's as we're recording this, it's before the new year. When this goes out, it'll be the new year. I, you have the first season coming. Uh, you mentioned Quadrilateral Cowboy. Like, do you kind of have this roadmap of, you know, when these certain series are coming out, uh, who you're working with? Of course, you can't announce everything, but. What exactly are you working on for 2017? Well, so we have five episodes as part of the Kickstarter. That'll okay. be the first thing we do. Um, and we're, we're fairly confident we can get the Quad Cow episode out. It'll be out by the time you see this and we'll be able to get it on Steam or Oculus Home. Um, there's, it turns out it takes kick, Kickstarter. We can't fulfill until Kickstarter collects money from everybody. And then we give, it, there's a lot of Kickstarter business that has mm-hmm. to happen. But I think we'll get that done, um, if not by December when we promised, it'll be very, very early in January with apologies from us. Um, and then we have a scientist for the next episode. His name is Sean Douglas. He's a biophysical chemist. Or he, he's a professor at UCSF, and he makes nanomachines out of DNA. And he's recreated his his lab in VR for reasons that we'll talk about in the episode that are really, really cool. Whoa. Uh, so... Um, like he he's next. We have a couple of games lined up after that that we're in production on right now, and we're not entirely certain that all of them are going to work. We're going to be able to get them. Like the the one of the things that's weird about VR is, of course, if you don't hit your performance targets, it's not like people have a bad experience. They start throwing up. Mm-hmm. So um, we're we're really super cognizant and aware of hitting perf targets. Um, so which is why we didn't announce the complete list of games for the for the for the Kickstarter. We're just not far enough along in production on on the last 3 to say, "Oh yeah, we can absolutely this game is absolutely going to be there in time for the for the episode that we want to shoot." So, yeah. Um but yeah, the Sean Douglas one, I think you're 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 when we're we're going to be able to pick up a nano machine that's normally infinitesimally small, hold it in your hand, look at it and and see how it works as if it were an object that was, you know, the human scale in the real world, which I think is pretty cool. God, that is cool. Uh, last thing you mentioned before, kind of like, you know, you don't want to do something wrong because then you'll throw up because VR can be weird in that way. At this point, with how yeah. long you've been in virtual reality, are you like just like almost nothing can shake you in VR? Are there like, can you almost take anything? Can you be on like a moving ship and like 800 things are going on and you will not feel any sort of motion sickness? So I don't I don't get motion sick ever. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've never gotten motion sick, which is incredibly like a, a biological curious something. I, I think the research says that something like eight or ten percent of people don't get motion. I was sick. gonna say that's super rare. Um, 
so I can play, if you've ever played Temple Run on the Gear VR, which is, I think, the barfiest game in <laughs> VR I've ever heard of. I can play, I played that in the back of Norm's car when we were driving up US 1 one day. So US1 oh in California is a really windy coastal road that goes back and forth. And and I felt like I didn't feel great at the end of that, but I didn't feel like I was going to throw up. So uh, I'm, I'm pretty bulletproof. Uh, I think I played Euro Truck Sim for six hours or something one time uh, on the DK1. Holy maybe. shit. Yeah. So it doesn't bother me. I, it's it's actually, it turns out that's kind of a, a bad thing when you're doing development though, because it means that I'm almost completely useless for that kind of testing because I, I just, I don't. I don't detect it at all. Yeah. Um, luckily, my lead, our lead dev Andre Infante, is is uh, hypersensitive, <laughs> so uh, he he just takes all those. Like at one point, I wanted to make a mini game that was basically throwing a paper airplane and then flying it around with your hands, like sticking your arms out to the side like you're a three year old and making airplane noises to steer it. And it was a really really fun game, but it made everybody but me throw up. So or at least <laughs> feel like they were going to throw up. So so uh, we we nixed that one for. <laughs> for obvious reasons you just describing that made me feel slightly ill i just thought about how that would actually work and man that's it sounds great but holy shit uh, i am one of those people who gets very vr sick very fast right now so i um but, but i mean people are figuring that stuff out too if you look at like lone echo which is one of the oculus story or one of the oculus studio games um like you're they're they're doing traversal of the environment just by reaching out and grabbing objects and pulling yourself along and letting the player handle their rotation while the the world um uh while they handle translation with the, with their hands and that makes makes no one that I've known that's tried it sick so like we're, we're in the next year we're going to figure out a bunch of cool stuff next 5 years probably Oh, yeah. A lot of different things happening. Uh, so if people do want to support the Foo Show, support you, or find yeah. any of this stuff, what's the best way for them to do that? So they can buy episodes. They, theoretically, they should be able to buy episodes now on Steam or Oculus Home. Uh, I think Oculus Home, we won't have an option to just buy individual episodes. You'll have to get the whole season as a as a bundle. Um, but yeah, you can uh, uh, go to FooVR.com and find links to both of those stores there. Or you can follow me on Twitter, and I tweet about it fairly regularly. I'm I'm just unfortunately Will Smith. <laughs> yeah, it's it, it's at Will Smith, not at unfortunately Will Smith, which could also Un- unfortunately Will Smith would probably be better. Actually, yeah, but, that um, might be your new yeah. alter ego. Um, yeah, exactly. Will, thank you so much. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time. I, again, it's it's cool to see people doing new stuff in VR. That's not just hey, we took this game you already liked and added VR to it. Like I, I like seeing these new ideas and things that only feel possible. Uh, in virtual reality so yeah it's awesome to see that got funded and i can't wait for what you do next with it cool thank you so much josiah absolutely and uh, thanks everyone for listening hopefully tune back in for the next episode of the 1099